Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Daniel Foch. I am a real estate broker and investor. I'm joined here by my friend, my mortgage broker, I guess mortgage agent, actually, Nick Hill. Your friend. It's usually my buddy, Nick, not my friend, Nick. It doesn't have as nice of a ring to it, but uh, <laughs> let it slide. Thanks, Dan. Yep. My name is Nick Hill. I'm a mortgage agent, real estate investor, and podcast host of this lovely podcast that you are listening to right now. And we've got quite an episode for you guys today. Not much of an intro because there's a lot to get through today. So Dan, why don't you start us off and tell everyone what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, it's one of those tougher topics to cover. Today, we're going to be talking about layoffs in the real estate space. I mean, layoffs are not something that that everybody likes to hear about, except maybe the bears and like a lot of the doomers. But you know, the reality is they're happening. They've happened in a lot of different sectors and, and we're starting to see some signs of them happening in the real estate space in the US a lot, I would say, in, in their more tech enabled real estate space, but also in Canada and, and actually some of the more institutional and I would call these maybe more restructurings, but potentially a sign that, you know, like we weren't necessarily wrong that a counter cycle is happening. It's kind of a little bit more heavy hearted, but we want to use it to point out a couple of things to those people who have been following us for a while. So I posted on Twitter asking for more information about a few large Canadian information organizations that have done some layoffs or restructuring. And a few people were like, oh, the bears look out looking for honey. And <laughs> I I want to say something about that because I am traditionally and have been a little bit more bearish than the average individual on real estate. But I want to make an important distinction on that. If I'm bearish, it doesn't mean that I want real estate to go down. Like I don't want to see people... Canadians suffer. I don't want to see people lose money. It just means that based on that, the economic variables that I was looking at, I felt that it would go down. And that was just my opinion for real reasons and my opinion, right? So the reality is I have no problem sharing good information, but there isn't a lot of good news in the real estate space right now. And the one point I want to add before I hand it over to you is when we were seeing news headlines that house prices were up like 30, 40, 50%. I would argue that, you know, the trajectory that we were on might actually have been maybe worse for Canada, right? I agree. And I mean, it got to the point where it was pretty obviously entirely unsustainable. And and also let's be clear here that real estate is just another asset class in the economy right now that has to deal with these market cycles that we're going through. But yeah, I mean, it's funny. Everything these days seems to become seems to be becoming a little more polarized. Whether it's you know right or left, this or that, and now it's bear versus bull. You know, it's funny that people identify themselves as as one or the other when a lot of it is just really out of your control. Now you can be bullish on something, and that could be a bad investment. But you could also be bearish on something, and that could be a great investment. So. Before we kind of dive in deeper, let's get a bit of a refresher on the history of bull and bear markets and just a clear explanation of what they are. So most of us are familiar with the general terminology to describe the market. A bear market is when security prices fall 20% or more from recent highs. This comes hand in hand with investor sentiment, which is pessimistic and negative, usually described as bearish. 
A bull market is the opposite, meaning investors are bullish. Simply put, it's a market that's going up. It's a period of market gains of 20% or more. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? We've been living in a great bull world for the last little while, and it looks like the bears are coming out for their long hibernation, which I think is hilarious because bears can eat for, you know, two seasons and then literally sleep for an entire winter. So, <laughs> A, a great bull world. Yeah. I like that too. A number of events can lead to a bear market, higher interest rates, rising inflation, unsustainable economy, military conflict, or geopolitical crises are among the usual suspects. Yeah. So at this point, it's pretty obvious we are in a bear market. But why bear and why bull? And where do these names come from? I always thought that these terms may be from the animals defining characteristics, right? As it turns out, that's mostly right. You know, bears, for instance, they hibernate, as we just said, and that could be an analogy for a docile, slow market. Bears can also rip your face off. If you don't believe me, go watch The Revenant and Leonardo DiCaprio will show you exactly how terrifying a bear can be. So they can be very destructive and that can be a good analogy for destroying the profits and gains. Also, the way a bear attacks is by swiping down on its prey, which is a good metaphor for the movement in the market. Now, bulls can be just as destructive, but bulls also charge, and that's kind of what they are known for, which makes me think that a great run in the market is like a charging bull. Also, the way a bull attacks is by thrusting its horns in the air. Again, you know, a good analogy for the direction of the market. So it seems to make pretty good sense, but there's actually another kind of cool historical explanation. So historically, the middlemen in the sale of bear skins would sell the skins they had yet to receive. So they'd sell them before they were in their possession. As such, they would speculate on the future price of these skins from trappers, hoping that they would drop. The trappers would profit from a spread, which is the difference between the cost price and the selling price. These middlemen became known as bears, short for bearskin jobbers, and the term stuck from describing a downturn in the market. Now, conversely, because bears and bulls were widely considered to be opposites due to the once popular and horrible blood sport of bull and bear fights, the term bull stands as the opposite of bears. So there you go, a little history lesson wow. for you. I always love Nick's story time. Nick's history, what are we calling it anyway? Uh, I don't what, know, but I don't like Nick's story time. <laughs> what does a bear market typically look like, Nick? Yeah, so bear markets usually have four phases. And this is really interesting to me because we can, if we, the better understanding we have of these phases, the more clear they become. The first phase is characterized by high prices and high investor sentiment. Towards the end of this phase, investors begin to drop out of the market and take in profits. The second phase, stock prices begin to fall sharply, trading actively, and corporate profits begin to drop. Economic indicators, that may have once been positive start to become below average. Some investors begin to panic and sentiment starts to fall. This is referred to as capitulation. The definition of that is the action of surrendering or ceasing to resist an opponent or demand. The third phase is characterized by shows speculators to start to enter the market, consequently raising some prices and trading volume. And in the fourth and final phase, stock prices can either drop but slower and low prices and good news start to attract investors again, bear market starts to lead back to the bull market. 
Yeah, I think it might be worth noting before I move on to the next piece here, that graphic that's the acronym HOPE, that housing often leads a lot of these longer economic cycles. So you see housing equity decline, and then it goes to orders. So new orders, people aren't spending that money on contracting, on buying stuff, on, and then profits start to decline. And then employment tends to be the last one to drop. So, you know, in the Bank of Canada, we hear a lot using employment as a metric for how they're going to measure the health of the economy and the success of their policy uh, measures. So I want to talk a little bit about risk management departments in businesses, because I think one of the primary functions of real estate professionals is to help clients, investors manage risk. And most large businesses, again, we talk a lot about running a real estate investment like a business, running your real estate portfolio like a business. And we we just met, went through it on the accounting episode. You know, one of the reasons to think corporate before personal is you're starting a business. You're not giving yourself a job. And a lot of big businesses have what's called risk management departments or RMDs. They are set up to manage risk on a day-to-day basis. And especially in finance, this is common. They're incorporated into the bank's risk management framework. And that's a statement sort of that comes from IFC or the World Bank Group. So it's, you know, it's not something to be taken lightly per se. I want to talk a little bit about market cycles in the context of that. So, and I want to talk about especially indicators of market cycles. So if you're looking for a good starting point to understand market cycles, I would point you primarily to Ray Dalio's video on YouTube, How the Economic Machine Works in 30 Minutes. Uh, We'll link to it in the show notes. The most important part of risk management is understanding what a worst case scenario can look like. And given that it seems like there's a sort of cyclical event happening, you know, there's a couple of different questions that you could ask about whether or not your existing asset or the asset that you plan to purchase could withstand an event like this or any type of risk in the market. And this is, you know, in quotation marks, what you hear like stress testing the model. These are a couple of different things that you might want to stress test for. How high could interest rates go? How bad could unemployment get? How low could rents go? How bad could vacancy get? How many of my tenants could miss rent? How low could prices get? And there are sort of second order effects to the answers of these questions. For example, we know that more than half of Canadians are just $200 away from insolvency based on data from wealthprofessional.ca. Yeah. And I mean, that is a scary statistic right there because that means to me that many landlords are $200 away from not seeing their next rent check and having to go into problem-solving mode with their tenants. Right. And a lot of landlords are doing that in a more reactionary basis. So from my perspective, by answering these questions, you can get an understanding for what the worst case scenario is and you can plan for it. What are you going to do if interest rates stay where they are? They don't even have to go up or down from here. What if they stay where they are and you have to have double your mortgage payment when you renew in five years? Yeah, that's a good question. And you know, further to that, what if your current lender doesn't want to renew at those new rates? And what if your backup lender doesn't like the valuation of your property? Right. And it can even be things as small as what are you going to do if your investment is in a city where a major layoff happens and your current tenant can't pay rent, but thousands of other people lost their jobs in that city. And the vacancy rate is now below or is now 15% in that market. And you won't be able to fill the unit without dropping rents by 50%, let's say. Maybe you offer them a break on their rent structure or a payment program rather than having to take that bigger risk. And these are pretty extreme examples. And that's the point. If we've learned anything from the past two years, it's that extreme examples do happen and they tend to happen relatively regularly. I mean, as millennials, our financial lifetime has already seen two once in a lifetime financial events, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's some turbulence out there. I love that. Two once in a lifetime financial events. The math doesn't add up there. Right. 
And so a lot of people liken bearishness to fear-mongering, and that's fine. They're welcome to do that. Fear is healthy, I think. Fear exists to protect us. It's literally the result of millions of years of evolution that allowed our species to survive until present day. A little bit more fear might have saved a lot of people in the past few years. There's a healthy balance, I think, between fear and greed. And you know, if you want to get a better understanding of that, you can look at the fear and greed index. So as investors, we have to focus on things we can control. And we've talked about this a lot. I'm not going to beat a dead horse here. But we focus on the things we can control, not the things we can't. We can't control what's going to happen outside of ourselves or the asset, but we can analyze what might happen and control our reaction to it. You can have a different strategy for the five or 10 different outcomes that might happen based on the answers to those questions that I just proposed. And let me leave with this one again. I say this a lot. The best case scenario doesn't need a plan. In a best case scenario, interest rates are stable. Everyone has their jobs. Stocks are stable. Crypto's stable. House prices are stable. Inflation's under control. And we can all go on living without having to solve any problems caused by any of those things. Does that sound realistic? Maybe, maybe someday, but today is not that day. Yeah. And I think we lived through, you know, arguably, quote unquote, a best case scenario for a little bit there when everything was no bull run. But that whole segment there kind of makes me think of, I don't often quote Mike Tyson, but it makes me think of that famous quote, you know, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Now, that's a bit intense. And, and obviously, I think we're playing a bit of devil's advocate here. But really, what we're getting at is, you know, go back and have multiple exit strategies. So analyze each one of those outcomes and think what happens worst case scenario? What are my exit strategies? How do I get out of this as unscathed as possible? Yeah. So the reason we prefaced with all of that understanding is to get into some bad news. And I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you know we have heard rumblings that we're seeing some restructuring at bigger organizations in Canada. And I wouldn't call these layoffs, but based on some of the things that I've heard from the inside, people have sent me messages when I was probing for information about this. You know, A lot of people who have been there for a long time have lost their jobs. So Manulife being an example where you know they, it might not be a net loss of jobs to the economy because they've you know, moved some of their property management to JLL, Jones Lang LaSalle as an example. But this is Manulife Real Estate. These are restructurings happening at large institutional real estate spaces. Similarly, you know, I was hearing some people letting me know about changes at TD where they're pulling people away from mortgage underwriting and moving them to fraud and not not mortgage fraud. So like no alarm bells or anything there, but just like fraud at the almost email level, like phishing and just small, small stuff like that. But also, I think both, I, I feel like both Manulife and, and TD actually use First National as their underwriting team. So pushing a lot of things over there. And I want to be careful with the explanation here because I these are things that haven't really necessarily been announced yet. So I'm, I'm relying on anecdotes from people on the inside. But apparently, TD moved a lot of those people away from mortgage underwriting and into fraud prevention. And apparently Redfin is leaving Canada. I think that's the other one that I got. I heard from a few real estate agents who were Redfin agents that they had to go back to their other brokerages. And I think Redfin did just do a big layoff in the States. So, you know, maybe move south of the border here and talk a little bit about what's going on there too. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the real estate layoffs, they're not alone. We've seen a ton of other layoffs primarily in the tech space that gets a lot of press. So, you know, for instance, Amazon, 11,000 staffs laid off. Meta, around 11,000 again. Twitter, 4,000. Open Door, 550. Zillow, 300. Microsoft, 1,200. 
DocuSign 650 and the list goes on. I mean, even Snap, we've seen 1,200, not to mention thousands more layoffs between companies such as Peloton, Roku, Shopify, Stripe, and Netflix. And I mean, don't even get us started on the crypto space either. I have no clue what's going on over there. I've just been following FTX and you know all the talk about crypto winter. I'm sure our pod fathers on the Canadian investor will do a much better job covering that space than we do. But it's alarming to see all these layoffs, especially from all these former, you know, tech unicorns that were dominating the market and, and were, you know, having a great time in this bull run. Now we're seeing, you know, the better part of almost six figure layoffs in high paying tech jobs. Yeah, for sure. And and I think it's especially interesting when you see, you know, we are seeing it happening in the States as well. Like Better.com was, I think, the first one to do this in December of last year. And they've kind of been trickling out with their layoffs. And they were under fire. But I'm sure that, you know, a lot of these tech-enabled mortgage brokerages in the States or mortgage lenders in the States, they're very data-driven, right? So when you start to see, and I said this early, halfway through COVID when Zillow started shelving their their iBuying program, right? I said, they know something about the market that we don't know, right? They have the richest data on the real estate space. So I think it's worth paying attention to what's happening with a lot of these individuals. So look at your better.coms. Look at when you hear Wells Fargo saying that their mortgage origination volume is is being halved. And you know, there's an article here from Forbes that says housing market braces for rising layoffs soon as mortgage lenders, home sellers cut thousands of jobs. We're watching these sort of counter cyclical events unfolding before our eyes. And I think it's important to start paying attention to them, not to be scared, but maybe to actually be poised for opportunity, right? That if we are going to see a counter cycle, it could present some of the best investment opportunities in our lifetime, as we've seen, you know, for in the stock space and in the crypto space where valuations are down, right? Like some valuations are down 90% from peak. So understanding that is important. And especially getting an understanding for what's going to happen to professionals in the real estate space, right, Nick, like real estate and mortgage agents. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, real estate and mortgage agents, there probably won't be traditional layoffs. And I'm using air quotes for anyone that's listening and can't see me. I guess Daniel the one that can see me now, but you know, it won't be traditional layoffs. Real estate agents don't get laid off in the same way that a bank employee or a tech employee would, neither do mortgage agents. But Dan, I pulled some data here from a from a wonderful source. Do you want to read this this yeah. quote right here and and cite it, please? Yeah, of course. So I tweeted this out, and I mean, this was a very very rough calculation. But on average, it says Ontario realtors' income will drop from 125k to 80k this year. It would be overstating probably the potential income of a realtor to say that on average they're making 125. But that's like if you were to take the number of homes sold and divide it by the number of agents. That's the average. Let's call it potential earnings. So the market is on track to lose $3 billion in commissions. This is just Ontario, by the way. $3 billion in commission earnings this year. So in 2021, we had $260,000 sales, $875,000 price, which is $227 billion in sales volume in Ontario. At 5% commission, that market gave out $11 billion in commission last year. Wow. Wow. And 2022, we're on track to hit 182,000 sales. And the sale price is down a little bit, 8-ish percent, I think, at 835,000 price, which is 151 billion in volume or at 5%, 7.5 billion in commission. So you can quantify that contraction of the market that's going to be felt. Yeah. I mean, 80,000 less sales in Ontario alone. We know that these figures, you know, we don't have the figures for other leading markets across the country, but you know that they're similar. 
and in, you know, we, I think we've said this quote more than once, but, you know, the average realtor sells 1.6 homes a year. So what happens now? And that was in a good market. Um, both real estate and mortgage transactions, probably 90% of the business is done by 10% of the agents. Yeah. We've heard that before. Yeah, there's a huge Pareto distribution, I think, is what they call that, right? 80-20 rule. Exactly. Yeah. I've never heard that term before, the Pareto. He was like a scientist who came up with that, I think. I'll look it up while you're, you're doing your little pitch piece here. So 87% of real estate agents will fail within the first five years. Now that is, again, that's that's historical data, but it's, you know, it's not as simple as that. A combination of housing inventory challenges, anxiety around the country and ever-changing effect of lead generation strategies makes the real estate industry more complex throughout the last few years. So if it was hard in the last couple of years, it just got exponentially harder. And it's the same in the mortgage space. Well, many executives report yearly turnover around the national average of about 30%. Some companies report rookie turnover of up to 60 and even 80%. So, you know, again, we knew this when we got into, you know, the space, right? We both knew it was tough. And that's why anyone who's been doing real estate, real estate investing, mortgage lending, anyone who's been doing it for several years, you know, they've weathered a few storms, but a lot of people have not seen a storm like we are heading into now. Yeah. I think National Association of Realtors in the States, so that would be like the US version of CREA, the Canadian Real Estate Association. We don't have this data for for Canada, but it's like 87% of all new agents fail after five years in the industry. So only 13 make it through. Wow. That's tough. Yeah. And I, I would imagine... It's that stat would be very similar in Canada. And just to, to reference, if anybody wants to know that Pareto principle that I was mentioning before, the 80-20 rule, which is very commonly used, it states that 80% of the outcomes are due to 20% of the causes. And it was named in honor of Pareto, who was a an Italian civil engineer, economist, and sociologist. Ah, Vil- Vilfredo, I yeah. I knew it. Yeah. So it's, this applies to, you know, people say 20% of the agents to 80% of the business. It's actually probably more extreme than that. But yeah, that's the history of that Pareto 80-20 rule. Should I jump over to the Korea stats here? Yeah, let's jump over to the Korea stats. I think that's enough bad news. Why don't we finish it up here by looking at Korea and then discussing what not only investors can do in this market, but what some professionals who are involved in the market can do to get through this. Okay, so quickly on the Korea stats, Canadian Real Estate Association, going to get to the good news portion of our advertising because I think we saw, I think it was seven months of consecutive price decreases on the Korea stats until last month. And I'm not, I'm not like, oh, you know, I think you saw this a lot on TikTok and whatever. Prices went up like in some markets over the past couple of months and everyone was like, oh, it's over. Yeah, yeah, back to the (laughs) bull, baby. Get back on the bull. But, you know, now, Canadian house prices are up 1.3% on a month-over-month basis, right? Yeah, and actual, not seasonally adjusted, monthly activity came in 36% below October of 2021. So obviously, very different market this time last year. Yeah, and the volume side is is really where it's being felt, I think. And to me, it's a big part of our GDP, residential investment, which is real estate commissions and home renovations and derivatives of that is like 13, peaked at 13%, but let's say it's around 10% of our GDP in Canada. So if we're seeing, you know, and again, remember that hope 
acronym, housing, orders, profits, employment. So housing comes first and then orders, which is your ordering of you know material, jobs, et cetera, comes next. So if you're seeing your real estate market contract and then you're seeing your renovation market contract, you can start thinking, okay, that's going to be a big contraction and big piece of GDP. We know like if you're in the, in the major urban areas in Canada, a lot of the people making a lot of money right now are in the skilled trades, right? And that's dependent on a solid housing market. Mm-hmm. So just worth thinking about. Back to the Korea stats here. The number of newly listed properties edged up 2.2% over month. So we are seeing a little bit of relief on the supply side because you're seeing we've been hearing a lot about this inventory shortage, right? And now we're not, we're easing up on that a little bit. We're getting more towards a supply demand imbalance, which could lead to, you know, what I've mentioned perspective on the outcome is, is that we will see some up months. We'll see some down months, but gradually it'd be kind of sideways, a very slow grind down. I'm not going to say the market will trade exactly sideways for two years, but I think it's going to be slow down for a while now. Yeah, I mean, that is interesting to see, you know, 2.2% isn't a lot, but it is a bit of movement in, you know, quote unquote, the right direction. I think a lot of the people sitting on the sidelines, as as we've heard a whole bunch, maybe less are starting to do that. And, and people are just getting back to, re- to the reality that we live in where interest rates are, are higher and home prices are lower. The MLS HPI, which is the Home Price Index, declined by 1.2% month over month and was down 0.8% year over year. Yeah, so we are still seeing prices decline. You know, on the first point there, I mentioned we'd seen seven consecutive months of price decline, and now we're kind of getting to this point where, you know, I think we've exhausted a lot of the downward force and you're seeing these smaller numbers. Like before we were seeing 8% drops, 8% changes in volume. Now we're seeing ones or even 0.8% on the year over year basis. So we're getting into what I would call a a stabilized downward market, right? Like we're in that kind of long-term counter cycle. And if you go back all the way to episode one, we talk about what you can expect from a counter cycle in, in Canadian real estate and what it looks like, what it looked like in 81 and what it looked like in 89 was a steep drop at the beginning, which we've already seen that in Canada, and then a very slow grinding down. And that's kind of like where you're on the bottom. You're very close to it, you're kind of just bouncing along the bottom there. The actual not seasonally adjusted national average sale price posted a 9.9% year over year decline in October. So we're down on a year over year basis. Yeah, but that's surprising to you. I mean, no, it's, it's if we're comparing, yeah, exactly. We're comparing this year to last year. Obviously, they're going to be drastically different. Yeah, but you know, I mean, October of last year, like I guess prices had already kind of started really ramping up there. So you are looking mm-hmm. at a high data point as well. You know, I mean, when you're looking at like the peak prices, like spring of next year is going to post some really, really ugly data, right? And it's always hard to get really a good grasp because you're looking at outlier comps on the upside, outlier comps on the downside. And so one of the things is it takes the market a long time to figure out what the hell is going on and figure out this downward price discovery process because it's not an easy process for the market to do. Sellers never want to lose money and they hold the assets. So they're always reluctant to give up those gains. Final stat read here, about 60% of local market of all local market saw sales fall from August to September. The national number was pulled lower by the fact that markets with declines included Greater Vancouver, Calgary, and the Greater Toronto Area, GTA, and Montreal. So some of these major markets with a lot of assets and high-priced assets. So they can cause a pretty big skew there. 
Yeah, and the actual national average price was 644643 in October of 2022, so last month. And that's down 0.9% from the same month last year. We've already been over that. No surprise there. The national average price is obviously heavily influenced by the two centers of the world here, being Greater Vancouver and the GTA, two of Canada's most active and expensive housing markets. So we always like to try to present data with those markets as well as without those markets because they do tend to skew things. So excluding these two markets from the calculation cuts almost 125000 from the national average price. So we've still seen drops across the country. However, just we've said this time and time again, obviously the major peaks and the major valleys are going to be seen in Toronto and Vancouver, and then a little bit maybe in some parts of Montreal and some parts of Calgary, but the rest of the country is a bit more stable than those markets. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to just maybe touch on, because it looks like we have a bit more time here. I'm going to touch on the the report that I did with Vijesh and Daryl, who I fellow collaborators on uh, on Twitter. Vijesh is actually a writer for like Motley Fool, Globe and Mail, etc. I gave you a link here, Nick, but I'm going to reference the chart on page six of the report, which shows the approximate housing market investment returns. So we analyzed 21 different cities in Canada and basically gave a chart, provided a chart that shows them beside the GIC rate or the risk-free rate that's available in the market right now. Looks like we had, so we did a couple of different things. So we showed the rate of return that's available in each of these markets. So what the lowest rate is and what the highest rate is. Are you looking at the chart here now, Nick? Yeah, I am. uh, This is a great report. Yeah. So the lowest rate and the highest rate. And then we also put in the average return or the rent to price ratio, which we've discussed on the show here, but we're going to be updating this report on a monthly basis just to show how returns are changing. Because as investors, you know, we shouldn't be super price focused other than analyzing it as what is the barrier to entry or a function of my affordability, but we should be very return focused. And I found that there was really no succinct place to for people to get a return. So I'll put a link to this. It is You do have to provide your email to get it because it is like it was a, a big expensive piece of, of information for us to put together. And it is using information from like private information from Canadian Real Estate Association and different real estate boards. And they require that we put collect emails of, of people that we're giving out this information to. So we'll go quickly. So I guess it was a couple of cities that were above the risk-free rate, the GIC rate. Do you want to just quickly read those that where you could find... So cities where you could basically find a cap rate that's higher than on average the GIC rate, Nick. I'm actually putting my email in right now. So why don't you keep going here? Yeah, for sure. So it's Calgary, Edmonton, Saskatoon, Regina, just snuck... Although it does have cap rates that go very like much higher than that. And then Winnipeg. Then we get to Ottawa, Gatineau, Fredericton and St. John's and PEI, which is was done as in its entirety. So those are all the markets where the rent-to-price ratio is the GIC rate, which is, let's say, 5%. It's just a little bit below 5% is the rate that we used for that. And then markets that fell below that, that GIC risk-free rate were Victoria. These ones aren't going to surprise you. These are, so these are the markets where you can't get a, a cap rate above 5%. So Victoria, Vancouver, GTA, Kitchener-Waterloo-Cambridge, London, Ontario, Kingston, Ontario, Montreal, Laval, Quebec, 
Moncton, Halifax. So yeah, that is a good spectrum of, I think the highest cap rate that we found was in St. John's and then Regina. And St. John's also had the highest average. So the highest rent to price ratio, which was like 7%. Crazy. Yeah. Wow. I honestly, I feel like this report probably deserves its whole own episode. So why don't we save the rest of it? And I really want to just take the next maybe two minutes here to shed a little bit of light. I mean, again, this was a Dan and I don't enjoy putting these these types of episodes together. We don't want to be the bearers of bad news. Was that a pun? <laughs> Thank you. But it's necessary, right? We always recommend to drown out the noise. And there's a lot of that going on right now. So why don't we just take two seconds here, Dan, and, and provide a little insight as to what we're doing and what others can do, whether you're an investor or someone in the real estate profession, mortgage profession, contractor, et cetera, what you can do and what you should be doing over the next year, two years to, you know, down the hatches, weather the storm and come out of this more successful than you went into it. Yeah, I think it's by our our Feliz Navidad Christmas sweaters. No, just kidding. That's, <laughs> that's step number one. Step one. So everybody <laughs> knows that you're a landlord or a real estate professional and then they can approach you and you can do deals with them. But do check those out on our, we'll put a link in the bio. I figured I'd plug those before we wrapped up. To me, the big thing yeah, that I think cool. that a lot of people forget to focus on is their own income right? Their ability to make money. So I would say in a market like this, if you don't have capital to be investing and sitting, letting your powder dry and waiting on the sidelines, then start accumulating powder. And that's not a drug joke. I think they use that in, in reference to gunpowder. That's where that, that came from. And maybe we need another Nick's history lesson on that one. But <laughs> you know, if you don't have dry powder to capitalize on opportunities in this market, start getting some, right? And that means, it could mean deleveraging, right? Shoring up some of your borrowing power. It could mean going to get a, a side hustle or reducing some expenses or whatever it is. I mean, that to me is the big one that a lot of people don't think about. And when I, when I talk about investing, I talk a lot about investing to increase your income, right? First and foremost, especially as millennials, we got to really level up that piece. They say the average millionaire has like seven streams of income, right? Getting a rental property can be one of them. That's the big one from my perspective. I think that's at least the phase that we're at right now, that's the big thing. And then the other one is analyze a lot of deals. So, you know, interestingly on that report that I just went through, I looked at hundreds of deals across Canada and I did it very quickly. And I did it because we have that landlord.io gave us and they, you know, and it allowed me to, to analyze hundreds of deals across the country very quickly. Look at deals. There's good deals out there. We bought some, you know, we've negotiated some, you have to have that willingness to negotiate them, but you have to be looking at a lot of deals if you're going to find the good ones, Right. It's like finding a needle in a haystack and, you know, you got to find an efficient way to get through that haystack, which is actually probably to, if you want to, you want to know the secret, you got to set it on fire because the, the <laughs> needle is made out of metal and it'll survive. That's a secret. Yeah. I love that. I'm going to take it in a different way. I think over the next little while, no matter what real estate, mortgage professional, contractor, real estate investor, if you identify as more than one of those things, what I am going to be doing, what I have been doing is trying to network and get in touch with as many other people that are in similar situations in my world as possible because there are power in numbers. And we're going through tough times right now and, and the times are probably going to get tougher before they get better. I don't want to say misery loves company, but success also loves company, right? So if you have a good team of people around you and they don't even have to be on your team, if you've just got a good network of people around you, 
that is gold in the next little while because people will have different exit strategies than you. People will be telling you things that you have never thought of. So my advice over the next little while, again, definitely do what Dan's saying. If you don't have a side hustle, figure out how to do it. It's never been easier to literally make money off of your phone even. So get creative and figure out a way to make more money. But while doing that, make sure you're connecting with like-minded people that are also doing that stuff. And you'll get ideas from them. And who knows, you might start a business or buy a property with the person that you meet in the next few weeks. And you can meet people at our events or through our network. So be sure to email us and we will help you get connected with other people in your area trying to do the same things you are. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. If you want to flip us an email, we do have a product coming that, you know, built with the objective of of connecting these people. We started off, we we're going to do like a Facebook group or whatever, but a lot of people from the space have been like, you guys got to build something like bigger here that, you know, we want to meet other investors. We want to have like localized groups online and whatever it is. So we're working on it. We've everything that you all are saying and it's coming soon. So email us if you want to be on the wait list for that. And, you know, we're, we want to build this thing out coast to coast. We want to make sure that we have a, you know, the next generation of, of real estate investors here connected with one another. Cause I mean, that's where I got people think I'm smart. I'm not, I just surround myself with the right people and I'm a sponge. I absorb the information that they give me exceptionally well and I regurgitate it well as well. Love that. And on that note of Dan's regurgitation, I think it's time to end the episode. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Remember, it's not all doom and gloom. Millionaires are made in recessions. Get your money right, get your networking right, get your circle right, and things will be okay. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you again soon. The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317, and a partner in GH Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial, and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.